Good morning to all of you. Leadership quotes abound in American business organizations, don't they? One of the most favorite and most famous that was in the organization that I worked for was this one. The role of the leader is to define reality and give hope. It's actually attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, considered one of the greatest military commanders in history. But in business, it's used when you're facing a difficult situation and you need people in your organization to keep following your lead and not give up. One former CEO described it this way in an interview. He said, when you think about that quote, it's very simple. But if you put it in a leadership context, what's very difficult about leadership is you'll have very well-meaning people who will try to sometimes distort reality, not intentionally, but they may just tell you what you want to hear. And part of your job as a leader is really to find out what the real deal is. He continues, but that's not enough. Then you've got to put together a strategy that galvanizes people, that gives them hope that they can overcome the obstacles and achieve something that they didn't think was possible. So define reality and give hope is really what I believe is most important for a leader. That was his quote. Now that's great advice. But what I found most difficult about leadership in that context was that I couldn't give the people in my organization full assurance that everything would come out well. Even with our best efforts and determination, there were so many things that we couldn't control. We could be realistic about what needed to be done. We could hope the hard work would lead to good results. We could list all the reasons why our situation would be better, but there were no assurances. Not really. But that's not the case with God. He defines reality. He gives hope. He's able to provide full assurance that everything's going to turn out great. Because he knows that without full assurance, we can become discouraged and give up. And he knows that with full assurance, we can persevere in hope. Now, we can reject the reality that God presents us with. Most people do. That's because they don't like it, or they find it too hard, or they find it too humbling. Or instead of rejecting, we can accept that reality and all that comes with it. One of the things that comes with it is warnings about falling away. But that's not all. It also comes with hope. Hope in God himself and what he's done for us in Christ. And when we understand these things, they bring us full assurance. 
So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. That's page 1004. And the Bible's under the seat in front of you. Grab the outline in your title, in your bulletin title, Full Assurance. Full Assurance. We're going to start reading Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9 to the, to the end of the chapter. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving, all, serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as Steve pointed out in last week's sermon, the author of Hebrews is writing to believers, and he's warning them. He's warning them not to fall away from all they've experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't want them to reject Christ and turn back to the old covenant just to stop getting persecuted. Yet, his expectation is that they will heed the warning. Why? Because they're believers. So he has confidence that his warning will bear fruit. So point one, confidence in salvation. That's what he's conveying to them after the warning is given. So look at what he says in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. To see this even more closely... Look ahead to Hebrews 10.32. It's worth turning there. 
because the, the author spells out exactly why he's so confident. He says, verse 32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, listen to this. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So he has good reason to be confident in their salvation. And yet, he has good reason for warning them. Point A. So he's confident that they're believers, but they're not acting like it. Look back at chapter 5, verse 11. 5.11. He had much to say to them, and it was hard to explain. Why was that? Because they'd become dull of hearing. In other words, they were sluggish and immature in their faith. Their hearts were not eager to embrace the promises of God and turn them into faith and patience. They were moving in the wrong direction. So he rebukes them. And then he starts warning them. Yet, he wasn't trying to discourage them. Instead, it was a loving word of warning. As Steve said, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to speak some pretty hard truth to people and do it rightly in love. And the warning the warning is framed in terms of the impossibility of restoration, point B. Look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's a warning not to abandon the salvation that they know in their heads and they believe in their hearts, but are struggling to live out in their lives. So what exactly is impossible? Simply put, it's a salvation with Christ, a Christless salvation. So you can't actively reject Christ or Jesus's high priesthood, you can't actively reject Jesus's high priesthood 
and be restored to what Jesus' high priesthood provides at the same time. He's talking about the sin of apostasy, falling away. So if you're actively walking in apostasy, you can't be restored. That's impossible. In fact, the author gives a very similar warning in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. He says that if we go go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because you've trampled underfoot the Son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant. And what's the outcome? The fearful expectation of judgment. You see, the leaders of Israel at the time of Jesus wanted salvation. They just wanted it without Jesus. That's why they delivered him over to be crucified. That's why they held him up to contempt. They wanted God to defeat the Romans and give them an eternal kingdom. But they wanted all that without Jesus. Essentially, they said to God, no thanks. We want to be saved in some other way. We don't want a Messiah like him. That's why Peter warned those leaders about their unbelief. Like this, Acts 4.11. Peter said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief, the, the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So repudiating Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of salvation, by doing that, they were embracing the impossible. That's the warning. He uses graphic language to get the point across. Don't abandon Christ. Don't act like an unbeliever. If you're looking for some other kind of salvation without Christ, then you're close to embracing the impossible. You're near to doing the same thing that the leaders of Israel did. And it didn't end well for them. They thought they were saving Israel by getting rid of Jesus. But their actions actually brought judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem. So, if you reject Jesus, like them, you want glory without suffering. You want a different kind of Savior, but no other Savior exists. Jesus is the only one who can preserve you and bring you to glory. So without him, there's no restoration again to repentance. Any other path you take means there's no power to save. 
You might think there is salvation somewhere else, but you've actually embraced the impossible. And if you end up embracing the impossible, you also run smack up against the word of God himself. How's that? Well, you're embracing the idea that God is a liar. That's point C, impossibility for God to lie. Look at verse 18. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So if you reject Jesus, it's impossible to restore, be restored to salvation. And it's impossible for God to lie. Meaning, it's impossible for there not to be a glorious salvation in Jesus, which God promised. Let's look back at chapter 5, verse 5, for a summary of that. Chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Christ was appointed by him, God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God gives two things, a promise and an oath, that Jesus is appointed as our great high priest. Salvation is in him alone. And since his appointment is after the order of Melchizedek, which he explains more in chapter 7, his priesthood lasts forever. These two things aren't new. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Psalms 2 and 110. They're a sworn statement from God that these things are unchangeable. God's promise and God's oath. And what he's sworn will be completely fulfilled. Why? Because it's impossible for God to lie. So, for the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, they would be embracing the impossible if they abandoned Christ. That's the warning. They were close to embracing the idea that they didn't need Jesus. The sacrifices of the old covenant could save them. They were wondering if they could still have repentance from their sins without the high priesthood of Jesus. But Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's only one name by which people must be saved. It's Jesus. That's the name. God has made it clear that if you seek salvation elsewhere, you're embracing the impossible idea that God is a liar. But as I said, the author was not trying to discourage these believers. He had confidence in their salvation. He gave them a loving warning designed to bring them assurance he wanted them to see the futility of abandoning Jesus so that he could contrast that with the true hope offered to those who believe in Jesus. And hope in Jesus brings assurance. 
We're on point two, assurance of hope. Here he's expressing the, ex- the desire behind such a warning. In verse 11, he wants each one of them to show the same earnestness. What he's talking about is the same earnestness that they displayed by their work and their love described in verse 10. They'd already started to bear fruit in the name of Jesus by serving their fellow believers. And that work and love hadn't completely fizzled out. Not yet. He adds, as you still do. So their work and love was continuing despite their fragile faith. But the point he's making in verses 11 and 12 is that the person who hopes in Jesus perseveres to completion, point A. Just look at what he says in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. Notice the nature of perseverance. By persevering in their love and service to God and to one another, the believer has full assurance of hope to the end. That is, to the end of their life, whenever that comes. So faith looks like something in the life of the believer. We observe that kind of fruit, the kind of fruit that people seem to be bearing in their lives. But there's only one way to really tell. If it's genuine, it lasts. That's why perseverance is so important. Now, when we want assurance about whether someone is a brother or sister in Christ... Don't we somehow try to judge the quality of their faith in some respect? We can't help it. Because people don't have on-off switches in their foreheads indicating whether or not they're a believer. So we listen to their profession of faith. We watch them get baptized. We see them coming to church. We discuss the gospel with them. We ask them how they're growing Those are all very important. But what is the most important test of their faith? The one that gives full assurance. They persevere to the end. So when tribulation comes, Jesus gives us this assurance in Matthew 24, 14. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So if you know baking, baking, then you know that KitchenAid mixers are the gold standard, no matter how much space they take up on your kitchen counter. They were introduced to home cooks in 1919 and haven't changed dramatically since the Great Depression. They're just sturdy and stable. They last for a long time. So... What if all mixers were sold without labels? In other words, you didn't know what brand of mixer you'd bought. 
And there were many competing brands that looked similar, but weren't of the same quality. How could you tell the difference? Well, you need to start using it. You'd have to whip potatoes, process food, grind meat, make pasta, shred chicken, mix batter, and things like that. And then you'd have to do it for many years. And if the mixer performed like a KitchenAid for a long, long time, you'd know that it was genuine, the real deal. So the warnings in this letter came to believers because they'd grown dull of hearing. The author wanted to arouse them from their sluggishness so that they would persevere in faith and know that their faith was genuine. That brings full assurance of hope. A hope that will not fail them. But it's a hope that imitates other people. That's why. Specifically, people who through faith and patience inherit God's promises. And of course, most prominent in that group is Abraham, the man of faith. Which is why his example is highlighted. Look at point B. Example of Abraham. There are three aspects to learn from Abraham's experience of obtaining his promise from God. The promise was guaranteed by God, expressed by God, and received by Abraham. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, the notion of swearing is important, as verse 13 indicates. This is not a spewing out of cuss words. Instead, it's the idea of taking an oath. For example, we can swear by our own name. I could say, you can take my word for it. In other words, trust me. That might be acceptable if I'm a trustworthy person. But often people want to escalate the truthfulness of their statement. They want to demonstrate that their word can be trusted. So they swear it in the name of something or someone greater than they are. In a courtroom, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you God. So you're swearing it before God. So, what if God wants to demonstrate his own truthfulness and trustworthiness? Who does he swear by? After all, there's no one greater than him. So, if he wants to guarantee a promise, how does he do it? The author of Hebrews tells us. In fact, God tells us himself. He swears by his own name. But what is he swearing to? And what is the promise guarantee? Well, the promise that these verses refer to involved Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, when God first called Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I will make of you a great nation. That, of course, inferred that he would have a son. And Abraham obeyed God. But in Genesis 15... Abraham was still childless, 
He reminded God that he promised to give him a son. And God affirmed his promise. When we get to Genesis 17, Abraham's faith seems fragile. He's fathered a child, Ishmael, by his wife's servant, with his wife's encouragement. Abraham asked God to bless him through Ishmael. But that was contrary to what God promised. God countered that he would bless Abraham through a child born to his wife, Sarah. It was a difficult promise for Abraham to believe because by this time, Sarah was past the age for bearing children. In fact, Genesis, in Genesis 18, Sarah laughed at the idea. But the Lord replied, is anything too hard for the Lord? Then we get to Genesis 21, when Sarah conceived and gave birth to Abraham's son. Both of them were very old. God did what he said he would do. It was a miracle. But was that the end of Abraham's difficulties? No. More still lied ahead. His faith was tested further. God called him to sacrifice his miracle son, Isaac. Now, can you imagine... Abraham's grief? After all that, was God going to rob him of what he promised? But when it became clear that Abraham was willing to obey God, even to that extent, even to that extent, he said to Abraham, God stopped him, and he said to Abraham, Genesis twenty two sixteen. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, God said, as quoted in Hebrews six fourteen, I will surely bless you. And he continued, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So as Hebrews eleven nineteen indicates. It was as if Abraham had received Isaac back from the dead. He'd received God's promise. God initially gave him the promise back in Genesis 12. God's word was good all on its own. It wouldn't fail. Each time Abraham faced the difficulty of believing God, God kept expressing the promise that he made to Abraham in various ways. He reminded Abraham that he would keep his word. Then... At the point when Abraham was tested most severely, God actually added certainty. The certainty of his, he added to the certainty of his promise as though God could add to the certainty of his promise, right? He did that in swearing an oath by his own name. Now, if you aren't following Jesus today and you aren't trusting him, for your salvation, then it may seem incredible to you that anyone could believe God the way that Abraham did. You probably don't think that you can believe what the Bible says about your sin. You probably don't trust what it says about how you can be saved. You may think that Christians are people who believe things that aren't really true, but they believe them anyway. Probably because it's better to believe in something than nothing at all. But the Bible 
testifies to the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How can we receive the righteousness of God? How can we be made righteous before him? By faith in the sinless life and atoning death of Jesus Christ, God's only son. God confirmed Jesus' righteousness by raising him from the dead with many witnesses. Abraham lived prior to the cross of Jesus, but he knew what it was like to receive a promised miracle son back from the dead. So, repent from your sins and believe in the salvation provided by Jesus Christ, God's miracle son. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the best path you can choose is to humble yourself before God and imitate Abraham's faith. Because when nothing else is reliable, you can rely on God and his promises. Our third point is God's reliability. In verses 16 through 20, the author of Hebrews is going to bring all of this to a head. It starts with the oath of God. Point A, his oath is final confirmation. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, I spoke earlier about how oaths are intended to convey the truthfulness that we have and the, and the reliability, elevate the reliability of our statements. Our country's leaders do this when they're sworn in office. We do this when we testify in a court of law. We do it in a sense when we notarize important documents. The purpose is to end any dispute about our truthfulness. We expect these acts to be final confirmation that we've made a reliable commitment and we'll see it through to the end. That's what's being described in verse 16. That explanation sets us up for what God did. He's faithful. He's faithful, but he wants us to know that about him. Because like Abraham, we're heirs of the promise. So God desires to convince us by the word of his promise and the guarantee of his oath. He wants to end any dispute. He wants this to be his final confirmation so we can have full assurance. But what's he confirming? His unchanging purpose. His unchanging purpose. We should see that in God's character. God doesn't change, so his word doesn't change. We can rely on him because of his very nature. Not only is he reliable, but he defines reliability for us. All we need to do is look to him to understand what it means to be reliable. When he says, trust me, we can confidently trust him. 
without reservations. So trusting God means that we hold fast to his word, point B. Verse 18 says, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, now listen to the purpose, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So encouragement is the purpose. But it's based on God's promise and God's oath. The promise and the oath are both certain because God does not lie. And the encouragement is strong. So it results in us holding fast to the hope set before us. So God's word is crucial to maintaining this hope. It's vital that he's not lying to us. We're trusting that God has been truthful about providing a refuge for us. He's our refuge. We fled to him for refuge. It's a brief but powerful picture of the kind of persecution these believers were under. It also captures the real situation for all of us. The picture is of fugitives coming to God and seeking asylum from him. We're under attack from our enemies. We have nowhere else to go. God is the only place of refuge. Doesn't that remind you of what Peter said to Jesus? In John 6, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and stopped following him. So Jesus asked his 12 disciples, those who were closest to him, do you want to go away as well? But Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That should be our answer as well. But is that your answer? Jesus didn't ask that question for himself. He asked it for the sake of his disciples. He wanted them to understand their own faith. In the same way, God's oath in these verses wasn't for himself. He doesn't need to convince himself. He doesn't need to justify himself. Instead, the oath was given for our sake. He gives it so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to his word. And God's word tells us that we must hope in Jesus. Point C, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
according, after the order of Melchizedek. First notice that this hope is described as the anchor of our soul, sure and steadfast. Okay, so I've gone fishing many times in all kinds of boats. Often I'm in a boat that doesn't have an anchor. So when I'm fishing and I have my line in the water, the boat starts drifting. I have to grab the paddles or the oars and guide the boat back into place. If I don't, I'll drift towards the shore and probably smash into it, or I'll drift out into the middle of the lake. But without an anchor, I have a hard time remaining in the best spot for fishing. Sailboats on the ocean, they have something called a sea anchor. It's a device for heavy weather that stabilizes the vehicle, the vessel. But rather than tethering the boat to the seabed with a conventional anchor, a sea anchor provides hydrodynamic drag, thereby acting as a brake. The sea anchor prevents the vessel from turning broadside to the waves and being overwhelmed by them. You see, an anchor keeps us from drifting away. It maintains our stability. It keeps us in place. It prevents us from being overwhelmed. What's the anchor of your life? Where do you go when you feel feel like you're adrift? What do you turn to when you're feeling overwhelmed and you need stability? The people in Hebrews were under pressure, persecution. So they wanted to turn back to the familiar. They were tempted to dump Jesus and cling to the old covenant. And what about you? Where do you go when life becomes difficult? Do you turn to the security of money? Do you want the distraction of immoral sexual relationships? Do you look to powerful people to save you? What do you do? Really? If you take away one thing from this message, it should be this. If Jesus is not the anchor of your soul, then you don't really have an anchor. Not really. You're adrift without hope. You're drifting into an impossible situation. The only sure and steady hope hope you'll ever find is Jesus. So don't drift away. Cling to him. And if you do feel like you're drifting away from Jesus this morning, what I don't want you to do is drum up some kind of false assurance. Assurance doesn't come from saying something over and over again and wishing it were true. What you need to do is go to God's word and read it. 
ask him to help you understand it and believe it. That's where encouragement comes from. That's when confidence and conviction come. It comes when you see it for yourself in the Bible. Podcasts, online sermons, books, newsletters, and even blogs can be helpful. But none of them can substitute for your personal interaction with God's word. There are only people talking about the Bible like I am this morning. But you need to hear it from God himself through his word. That brings a hope that we can hold on to in the storms of life. And it's correct to say our hope is in a person. Verse 19 describes it as a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So hope does something for us. It's active. The inner place behind the curtain is what? It's the holy of holies. It's the holy of holies. That's the place where only the high priest could go. So what he's saying is that our hope is in a person who approaches God for us on our behalf. He intercedes with God for us as our intercessor, our mediator. Of course, verse 20 is clear about who that person is. It's Jesus. He enters for us. He shows us the way. He's the one God promised. And he's the one confirmed with an oath. And the way he fulfills all that God promised is by becoming our great high priest. But he's not like any high priest we've ever known. Or any priest we've ever known. Instead, he's an eternal high priest. The order of Melchizedek means he's our sure and steady hope forevermore. And the author of Hebrews has plenty more to say about that in the rest of this book. Okay, so good leaders may be able to define reality and give hope. But that kind of leadership only offers a little temporary comfort. But those leaders can't give assurance, not full assurance. But if we hope in Jesus, that's exactly what God gives. And he wants to give that assurance. If we'll only take him at his word and believe him. But there's only one essential element to our salvation. It's a person, Jesus. He's completely sufficient for our salvation. There's no salvation apart from him. Without him, everything falls apart. And with him, everything holds together. So if we believe God, let's persevere in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Let's be confident because God has given us his word, a promise guaranteed with an oath to fulfill his great plan of salvation through Jesus, our eternal high priest. And let's rest in the full assurance 
we have from God, even amid life's difficulties. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and what you've done in this passage, what it declares. And I pray that we would go to your word and read it for ourselves and hear from you by your word about your faithfulness and about your trustworthiness and that you would give us grace to believe it. We thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you that he enters the Holy of Holies in the heavens on our behalf and mediates for us before God. And thank you for his righteousness that can become ours in his name and for his glory. Amen.